Hi, everybody. This is Jean Nathan, and it is Crosstown Conversations. So I have with me this morning um, an expert in something that I'm very interested in, and we're beginning to hear a lot of chatter about um, in the country, really, uh, looking at the last time we had so phenomenal an impact on our economy um, with the Great Depression and how we came out of it, which was what, with a very aggressive program that was established by the federal government. And I'm learning from the professor you're about to hear from, uh, from Congress as much as from the president. Franklin Delano Roosevelt gets all the credit, but apparently Congress had a big hand in it too. I don't know if that's gonna happen this time actually, but um, so introduce yourself, introduce yourself um, and, and, and tell us why this is an area of your expertise. Uh, I'm Patrick Maney. I'm, I taught at um, uh, U.S. History at Tulane for 18 years from 1980 to 98, then went to the University of South Carolina, then to Boston College, and I have um, retired from teaching back in New Orleans, in part because our first and only grandchild is in New Orleans. So um, here we are where my uh, career began, and most of my most of my career has been studying the Great Depression, uh, and particularly from the congressional side, but I also wrote a book about Franklin Roosevelt. And one of the big discoveries was that this was, the, the New Deal was not as much of a top-down, president-inspired movement as many people, or as legend, have, would have us believe. It really, Congress played a key role, but a lot of the pressure uh, for New Deal change came from the grassroots. It came from labor organizers in the big cities and, and from others. And so, you know, we've gotten this image to, you know, of, the, of the New Deal and of government since that time that we always have to look to Washington. But I think what is really remarkable about um, what happened during the 1930s is how much of the inspiration for it came at the grassroots level. And I have to say, I mean, you know, we can, there is, the New Deal transformed America and still does today. There's no place you can live, including New Orleans, where you still don't see uh, concrete uh, reminders of the New Deal. But I will have to say that there, there, you know, we have a kind of a tendency to romanticize it as well. You know, nobody in their right mind would want to go back to the 1930s. I mean, we're experiencing hard times now, but back in the 30s, you didn't have social security or unemployment compensation or public housing or almost anything. So people were really on their own. Um, and this is kind of a roundabout way of saying that one of the things I think that is happening today in our current crisis is again, there's a some of echoes of the New Deal in that the most kind of creative um, approaches to dealing with especially the, the virus has been at the state and local level and certainly not from Washington. Right. Um, and uh, the interesting thing about um, that is the extent to which that is a reaction to the um, the confusion, let's just say, at the least, and um, and a lot of um, lack of experience and, and and lack of intentionality at the national level, uh, avoiding all of the um, the things that the things that we can throw out the uh, about the president himself. Um, but the the resulting process is confusing, is dysfunctional, and so the governors and the states have had to pick it up. The problem with that, of course, is that there are a lot of states where the governors are in lockstep with the president for various political reasons, and those states um, are standing to suffer. We're, we're still kind of waiting for the shoes to drop on those that have never closed and those that are, are opening early. And we even have a revolt in this, the Louisiana state legislature where we have one of the few, the, the only uh, Democratic governor in the South, and they're talking about stripping away his power to um, uh, keep us um, uh, sheltered in place, right? So uh, my question is, to what extent is what we're going through right now just simply a resistance, or will it become um, a, an empowering 
process that will, in fact, um, increase the role uh, in, in, uh, of the governors and, and state legislators uh, in a, in a uh, constructive way. I mean, uh, how optimistic are you that what we're going through right now is more than just a reaction to the mess in Washington? Um, uh, how do you see this becoming a positive a trend? Yeah, it's too, it's really too soon to say. I mean, at the beginning of the Great Depression, uh, in 1929, in the early years of the Great Depression, uh, no one could have foreseen the power at the grassroots, especially, say, in organized labor. You know, organized labor, uh, it would seem, could not flourish during a period of depression, but organized labor was a driver of change during the 1930s. And so, I mean, one thing that gives me some sort of small kernel of optimism is just that at the beginning of the Great Depression, nobody could have seen what would result, you know, at, at the local level or then the pressure that, that was uh, made to bear on Washington. So, but I, you know, I, I'm, I'm um, uh, also pretty pessimistic about about politics today, and I think we have sunk to a to a um, a lower level than we should have. And and again, during the 1930s, Congress was very responsive, and that just is simply not the case today. I mean, Congress is at a lower than low ebb, and um, that is that's discouraging. So it's in some ways it's leaving us in here in Louisiana and around the country sort of on our own. And how this is going to turn out. Um, you know, I, it, it's anybody's guess. Yeah, I, don't know. I said, it's anybody's guess at this it's point. Anybody's guess, guess. I don't, I try not to be too pessimistic about it because again, um, you know, the great depression, there's nothing today that is approaches in severity as the great depression. I mean, that, that it was just, um, a lot of people you know, are making that comparison, but you don't agree with that. I don't agree with it because again, at the until really the late 1930s, again there was no social security, there was no unemployment compensation, there was some relief and early efforts at welfare, but it was a scary, it was a really scary thing. And by 1939, 1940, on the on the eve of the Second World War, it very much appeared that depression was going to be sort of, you know, to use a cliche today, the new normal, that there would be no recovery. People were sort of reconciling themselves after 10 years of depression, of hard times. They were reconciling themselves that things aren't going to get better. Yes, there had been some improvement, but it was really not until the Second World War and the stimulus, economic stimulus of the Second World War, that the United States came out of the Great Depression. So still, you know, to study that period, I, I just thought, uh, I'm thinking we do have a lot of advantages, as bad as things are, we have a lot of advantages today that people didn't have during the 1930s. So I could, I, I would love in a way, just out of my curiosity, and I have a his, huge historic curiosity, uh, I'd love to delve more into why the Congress was uh, the way it was and, and um, that sense of uh, uh, doom and that things weren't going to change. But uh, let's switch gears and go to why this is interesting right now. So the big question right now is as we, nobody thinks anymore that there's gonna be a, a switch and this is over. So we're all getting accustomed to a more phased um, process. It's, it's gonna take a while. Um, even those places that are just opening period, have their spikes in cases which will, uh, cause them to probably have to backtrack here and there and whatever. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be an up and down and um, ongoing process. But the, the, the issue as we, as we kind of get past the immediate relief stage, not that there's a lot of relief for everybody, uh, needless to say, but um, as we kind of move towards, okay, how do we uh, shape the future as we move out of this? Is the model of the WPA's very significant um, intervention in the economy, um, creating some of the things that you just talked about, creating a safety net that didn't exist before, 
but in our case, again, and there was a lot of infrastructure development, you know, the putting people to work. When I think of the WPA, I think of putting people to work, constructing things, building things. Um, and I then mean, in the in, arts. In, in New Orleans, I mean, it's a, a phenomenal. Finishing the, what came to be known as the Huey Long Bridge Charity Hospital. A lot of um, uh, uh, Autobahn Park is still bears the work of WPA workers. and and City Park and Lakefront Barnley Stadium and on and on and on. Um, yeah, yeah I, you know, it does seem one of the flaws of the relief package that Congress passed and the president signed was that it went, instead of putting people to work, you know, it, it, it went through business. It was just giving them kind of a, a check to, to um, help them, you know, to get the from day to day, but during the, the great thing about the the depression works, the New Deal works, the Works Progress Administration, the, the um, uh, uh, WPA, the Public Works Administration, and all the rest, it did give people jobs, and with the jobs, a sense of pride, you know, that people, that they were doing something, that they were improving the country. Now today, you know, there was not a virus that would, would keep everybody locked at home. So that is a big, that's certainly a big difference, but it still seems to me that um, uh, both with the, you know, the recession that we, that we had uh, recently and then getting out of this, what's certainly gonna be a recession, the New Deal does have, I think, some, some useful models. I mean, they, like, and especially like infrastructure, there's so much that can be done in terms of infrastructure um, roads and bridges and airports and schools. And then I think putting people to work on those things, you know, it does it sort of give people a sort of sense of kind of pride that they are rebuilding the country. Right. And of course, we've yeah. talked already before about the, the WPA. It wasn't just the buildings and bridges and roads that went up, but the tremendous uh, addition to our cultural heritage uh, with the music projects and the, um, you know, the, the artists and, and, uh, and historical research, putting people to work on things that really did enhance our, the quality of our life, not just sort of economically, but, you know, it's that, that, that uh, uh, slogan, uh, man does not live by bread alone and, and uh, uh, bread and roses too, that you have to have something that enhances the, the quality of life, not just in terms of material possessions. And a lot of people are saying today, I think, and I don't know whether there was the same dialogue at the time, there must have been, because otherwise you wouldn't have had as powerful a um, cultural program as the WPA did generate. Uh, but a lot of people are saying today that um, it, the arts are going to be an important part of our um, some kind of restorative process that's going to develop. But uh, let me ask you the two, the two essential questions that I really want to get to the heart of without running out of time. And that is, is that model, the WPA model, the right model? Or are we at a different, totally different point in history and there's some other approach? Um, and uh, what about uh, infrastructure. Uh, our, our infrastructure is a mess. We've got a lot of, you know, rusty old bridges. We've got a lot of roads that um, uh, actually it's amazing that there were still roads that were supposed to have been built towards the end of WPA that never got built, such as a north-south road in, in Louisiana. That's uh, sort of notorious. And um, so, uh, you know, do you see that model as relevant right now or not? And if, if so, um, it'll probably have to be called something else. And, it'll, and again, it'll have to have a lot of congressional support from a new Congress, hopefully, in, um, in the, after the coming election. Um, or is there some completely other construct that um, has occurred to you based on your experience and your knowledge of WPA? No, I think, you know, I, I certainly can't, I can study the past, but I can't predict the future. I would say that the public works part of the New Deal, that is a model that, that if we could just get, um, you know, if we could get Congress to act on it or a new president to act on it. I mean, one of the problems is too, there's a historical illiteracy in this country. 
and nobody really knows or appreciates things that have worked in the past. So I think it is a model, if only we could sort of force our legislators to look back at it and see how beneficial it would be. And then in terms of the arts, I mean, one of the things that is sort of interesting, since we're talking on Zoom right now, is that it does seem to me that you're having something sort of comparable, a modern, something that's so comparable to what happened in the 1930s, where people are kind of developing their own art. I noticed, you know, the other thing is that, that was phenomenal and, and, and uplifting to me. I don't remember who the muralist was, but somebody in New Orleans, just within this last week, painted this beautiful mural in honor of, gra of graduating students. And I thought, this is just, this is, this is what happened in the Great Depression. There was this kind of a, um, you know, attention to ordinary people and uh, respect for ordinary people. And so I do, I do sort of see that happening. And even with the, um, you know, with the late night talk show people, how they are having to um, kind of improvise, improvise and um, do something different than just going into these fancy studios. So I think there is, there is the possibility, there is the potential here for kind of a, you know, kind of a grassroots remaking uh, of, the, of, of our culture. Uh, and but, it, does, it, it does kind of segue with the um, evolving. I'll, I'll never forget how I was thinking a lot about, you know, the inequality issue before it became a campaign slogan way back. And I remember the very first article literally in the New York Times that called attention to the 1% versus the 90%. They didn't call it that at that point, but it, it wasn't that long ago. I, I, I have absolutely no sense of time. So I'm gonna say it's within <laughs> the past 10 years. But then this election cycle, uh, due in large part to Bernie Sanders really staying on the case and pushing it in that direction, um, there is an emphasis on inequality. And then, of course, the COVID has revealed the, all these revelations that we've experienced showing how um, lower income people and minorities have suffered more, have died more, have, uh, and then, of course, the connection with pollution as well and the whole uh, environmental issue. So th there's a peculiar coming together of some uh, issues. A, 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 um, I think there's an anger, a fury in the country over what... Um, uh, Trump has done to um, hollow out all the environmental regulations that w were relevant to the climate, which is a part of why we are succumbing to bugs. Because if you look at other species, we're losing other species. And usually it's some bug that gets it. The bug is kind of a, uh, an, a symptom, an outcome of climate change, in my view. And I don't know what I'm talking about. So who knows if there's any real connection, but I think there is. So, but there is an environmental issue. There is the inequality issue. And then there is the need to figure out how to come out of this in a, in a new place. And, and maybe um, there will be kind of a very similar um, swing back of the pendulum to appreciation of um, the, uh, the people who are earning at the wrong end of the pay scale. Uh, there are cycles in American history, no question about it. The late 19th century, the Industrial Revolution was really a low point for the masses of Americans. And then in the early, the first decades of the 20th century, you had this progressive movement led by Teddy Roosevelt and Robert LaFollette and Woodrow Wilson. Then you have a swing back to the right during the 1920s. And then, then, the, then the 30s and early 40s, you've got the New Deal. So there is a cyclical nature to American politics. And I think that too gives me hope, although this cycle has taken an awful long time to swing back. So, But maybe this is it. Maybe, maybe. that is going to be the uh, silver lining to a really frightening, uh, terrible time that we're going through, not just because there's a virus that's literally killing what will probably be and before it's all over hundreds of thousands of people. But um, it, it, it is, uh, again, pulling back the curtain on so many things and stimulating the need, need to do something. And maybe we will go back into that kind of a cycle. I, I want you to uh, stay in touch. I'm going to run out of time. I probably have already run out of time because um, I didn't do as 
careful of stop watching as I keep predicting I'm going to do as I get used to doing Zooms. But um, I, I hope that uh, you'll stay in touch with us as the thinking develops on this. And if there's any kind of um, discussion going on, any dialogue, um, please let me know so I can touch base with it. Because I'm a believer. I mean, I studied the WPA, especially the cultural aspects of it. And uh, it was such a strong element here. Um, and, you know, I literally, I, I live near City Park, and so I'm there a lot, and I'm observing all the, the deco details there that were built during a WPA. So I'm, I'm kind of hoping that, if not that, something similar is going to happen. So in terms of keeping in touch, I will certainly do it, because I am housebound now, and this is my, um, <laughs> Aren't we this, all? Is my this is my big outing for, the, for today. So. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, Patrick, for this outing, and um, please uh, plan on uh, more in the future. And thank you. Uh, thank you so, so much for your time <laughs> and for the focus that you put on this. And I, I want to see your book, so you should send me something to tell me where, who, who has it in, in, uh, in the city. Maybe... Um, one of the bookstores has it on. Uh, and most recently, I'm looking, I can see your, everybody's with a Zoom, people are looking at bookshelves. I see your uh, Clinton book, but um, uh, okay. uh, more recently, I I've got to reorganize my books behind me, because you said you're looking at my books. Yeah. yeah, I have a book, I wrote a book, um, it came out four years ago, on the Clinton uh, presidency. So I right. think that deserves a place up next to uh, his, uh, his autobiography. I will grab a hold of it. I have met him and my husband has worked with him and um, he accomplished some things. But um, to me, uh, there was a lot about the Clinton administration and maybe you touched on this that um, was a little bit of more Republican light than Democratic. Yeah, sure. you know, it, I, he didn't have a whole lot of leeway, but I will say that the, you know, the situation we find ourselves in today, this isn't just the last four years. This has been developing, I think, since the mid-1970s. And it's under both Democratic and Republican yeah. presidencies. Right. I mean, it's been worse under Republicans. I mean, my, my uh, partisan view. But both, and including the Clinton presidency, mm -hmm. contributed to some of the inequalities and problems that have manifested themselves most and, and, dramatically and today. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more, and I feel that a big part of it has really been their failure to understand, appreciate, and respond to the dramatic change in our economy that um, should have been a trigger for a much more um, uh, innovative thinking about how you make sure that your society, your populace uh, is a part of the future and not left behind. Right. I've got to cut this off. I know I'm over right. time. So uh, I look forward to uh, the, our next conversation. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks very much. trying to do their share and uh, we do it based on um, kind of things that we have some familiarity with and and uh, we know that we can help uh, through our skills and uh, Wendy Menard has taken on um, something that is very crucial to a lot of people and that is really trying to help folks understand this whole workforce financial universe um, that's probably too broad a statement but um, I'll let her uh, take it down to her niche of what she's doing. But uh, thank you for what you're doing, first of all. 
uh, Wendy. And now why don't you um, uh, give us a little bit of an idea of what you've been up to. Hi, Ms. Jean. Thank you so much. I appreciate you inviting me on the show. My name is Wendy Mannard. I'm the owner of Mannard Law. We're a law firm based out of New Orleans, Louisiana. We are primarily a personal injury law firm, but we help people in other areas of the law as well, including employment. And I started this group called the Louisiana Coronavirus Unemployment Legal Advice Group just because I saw a need in the community to help people understand all the constantly changing guidelines and the new guidelines um, of what's available to help people financially during this time. There's so many people who are in a financial crisis really right now who have been living paycheck to paycheck before this. And some people haven't received any money for the last four weeks. So anyway, this is really our attempt to help serve the community in that aspect by kind of walking them through the process. Um, we're, not we're not representing people as far as filing unemployment, but I'm just giving general information to help people understand the process for themselves. Which I think is, is the bottom line for a lot of people is that this is a very confusing time. It's, it's a, a complicated process. Um, there's many different um, avenues for support, some of them unofficial, such as yours, and, and some of them coming straight out of the federal government. So I, I just can't think of uh, too many things that are more important than helping people understand what their opportunities are. Um, so if, if I were, um, tell me who has the greatest need right now and is having the biggest problem of securing the help they need. Does that make sense? Sure. So, um, everybody's got a different situation. Everybody has their own challenges. So I don't, I don't know if I can say who's got the greatest need, but certainly, people who haven't been able to work because of a result of this um, COVID shutdown, who don't have you know, a lot of money in the bank to hold them through this time period. So for those people, two basic, and, and this is, these are general guidelines that I'm sharing. And of course, today being May 6th, the guidelines keep changing every day. So there's always gonna be updates and I'm just touching lightly on some of the general programs available, of course. That's one of the big issues, isn't it, that it keeps changing? Exactly, exactly. So anyway, there's unemployment benefits that you can apply for in Louisiana. You would go to laworks.net or .gov, I'm sorry if uh, I didn't say, say the right um, address, but that's one of the options. Another thing is, this isn't talked about as much, but there's the Families First Coronavirus Act. And this applies to employers who have less than 500 employees. A lot of people don't realize this, but under basically what Congress did is they expanded the emergency paid sick leave. And that provides up to two weeks or up to 80 hours of paid sick leave at the employee's regular rate of pay. And now this is dealing with private employers. Regarding public employers, some uh, are under this act and some are not. And I'm not gonna get into the weeds on that, but you can find out more if you go on the US Department of Labor website. But this applies to most private employers who have less than 500 employees. Um, and now there are exceptions for healthcare providers and you can look at the definition of what, who's considered a healthcare provider under the Department of Labor. And there's also um, an exception for uh, employers who have less than 50 employees. They can apply for a hardship waiver. And there's more rules as to who qualifies for these hardship waivers. But basically, if providing this expanded paid sick leave an expanded emergency paid expanded family and medical leave is too much of a hardship for that company to continue to be in business, 
then they may qualify for the hardship exemption. But in, to, in order to do that, they have to have less than 50 employees at the time. Less that, than 50. Mm -hmm. Less than 50. So, uh, we've walked through uh, uh, quite a few steps already really quickly. Um, so families first. Was families what? first Coronavirus Response Act. Coronavirus and, Response Act. Yes, ma'am. All of these others that we're talking about come under that? Or they're separate? Right. So there's basically two, two things under the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. First of all, there's this paid sick leave. And that provides up to two weeks or up to 80 hours of paid sick leave. And there's, there's a few reasons that you could get this. It's for the regular rate of pay. The way I um, kind of categorize this is if it's for taking care of yourself because you've been diagnosed with COVID or you're seeking, co or you're seeking a medical diagnosis because you have the COVID symptoms or because a healthcare provider has advised you to self-quarantine. Maybe you have underlying health issues and you can get a doctor's note for that, which would obviously be helpful. You can qualify for these two weeks of paid sick leave at the regular rate of pay, but that's capped at $511 a day. And then if you need to stay home from work and your employer doesn't give you the option of teleworking, but you have a bona fide need to care for an individual subject to a quarantine, or care for a child under 18 years of age whose school or child care provider is closed or unavailable for reasons related to COVID, and or the employee is experiencing a substantially similar condition as specified by the Secretary of Health and Human Services in with, consultation with the Secretaries of the Treasury and Labor, you can be, um, you can be provided two-thirds of your regular rate of pay, and that's capped at $200 a day for those two weeks. And then, now that's for every employer, I'm sorry, every employee, even if they've been only working for one day. Now for employees who have been working for 30 days or more, they are eligible for up to an additional 10 weeks of paid expanded family and medical leave at two thirds their rate of pay capped at $200 a day if they have a bona fide need for leave to care for a child whose school or child care provider is closed or unavailable for re reasons related to COVID. So all of this, again, uh, to keep it simple for somebody who this might apply to, is under Families First. If they go to the U.S. Department of Labor website and put in Families First, they'll start to see what their possibilities are in this regard. Is that, is that correct? Yes, ma'am. I would recommend that they look up Families First Coronavirus Response Act. Okay. So that's really important to include. Okay. Um, wow. <laughs> so that, that's a lot of possibilities and, and uh, with different permutations. And I never heard of that one before, quite frankly. Um, not that I have uh, paid that close attention to the, you know, the, the details on this. Um, what other program is there that you think is really important and an opportunity for people that maybe less people know about? Okay, so um, really briefly, the Families First, that goes from April 1st to the end of 2020 at this time. Okay. Um, th then, of course, there's unemployment benefits. A lot of people know about that already. As far as programs that people don't know about, one thing I've found that if you're in a specific industry, if you Google grants available for people in your industry, I mean, for instance, they have grants available for hairstylists, they have grants available for artists, there's all kinds of grants available, and you just need to look online and see what's available, see if you can find something in your specific industry to help you. Uh, and you're literally saying you just go into an industry, uh, again, is this under the Department of Labor? Or 
No, ma'am, that's not under the Department of Labor. I have just found- You're talking about just grants in general per industry. So you're saying literally go in, go on Google and go into, um, and into let's say art. I'm very interested in that because that's, that's my primary focus of my um, uh, organizational work uh, is with uh, the creatives in the city. So for the creatives, for example, I would say literally go in and look at artists I would, I would, what I would recommend is, is if there's like a, an organization for like greater artists of New Orleans or something, I just, I'm not, I'm not this up. example, yeah. Right. I would go to that website because a lot of these industry specific grants are often published on those community websites for that particular uh, okay. industry. Okay. And, and I'm just, because you had asked a question, what sort of programs do people not know about? And so there are these little programs. All kinds that you of kind of have to search for. grants, yeah, that uh, on an industry basis. That's, that's really interesting, too. Um, what are some of the um, impediments or kind of um, the, the, uh, the black holes that people uh, drop into that um, really kind of make the whole process murkier and less effective. Um, uh, that that you know, uh, I, I don't know what the right metaphor is, but log jams or just you know situations where, wow, they get caught in a process that takes them um, not exactly where they need to go. What are right. some of the real um, kind of impediments that people need to be prepared to understand and get around? So what I've seen for people who are on my group, a lot of people who had not been paid for a very long time, it was because they were having issues once they reported their vacation pay or PTO or sick pay. And it was, or severance pay, it was kind of confusing because at first they were saying, report your severance pay up front, report vacation pay and sick pay but well, actually at one point they said, don't report, and I'm talking about unemployment benefits. So, and when I say they, I'm talking about the Louisiana Workforce Commission. So at one point they were saying, don't report PTO and sick pay. And they actually stated that on their website on an update as of March 16th. But then on April 27th, they removed that sentence that says don't report PTO and sick pay. And then recently, just in the last few days, they posted something on their Facebook site that said you should report PTO when you file your initial claim. But if you filed it and, and they said what they said was you don't need to report PTO if you were paid it before your last day of work, but if you were paid it after the fact, then you do report it, but you report it when you file your initial application. So normally when you file for unemployment benefits, you file an initial application and then you file weekly certifications. But if you file, if you report the PTO or severance pay on the weekly certifications, every time you file, you file something like that on a weekly certification, it takes them longer to go back and look at that. And they have to sometimes contact your employer and give your employer at least two days to get back to them so that they can determine how long or for what weeks that PTO or that sick pay or that severance pay was for. So that's why it's more efficient if you can report it upfront when you file your initial claim from what I understand, and this is just anecdotal from what I've seen people have reported on the group, but there are a lot of people who did not report PTO upfront when they filed their initial claim. And since just a few days ago, they said, now you do report PTO. This is, this is, this is, <laughs> it's bad enough that what's happening, what, what has happened is, is not just has happened, but is happening because there's people who want to say this is over. And of course we know it's not, 
Um, but to have to deal with these kind of complicated um, clerical uh, issues and then to have them completely change the program, that's mind boggling. I think it's very confusing to people. And, you know, I don't know if it's because they did not receive clear guidance from the Department of Labor or, or how it came that the guidelines seemed to change. But anyway, this is where we are today. So in going forward, people have asked, well, how do I report PTO now if I didn't report it in my initial application? I'm not really sure the answer to that. Um, I know you can email them. And I do think it's important to at the very least email them with that information because you don't want to be later get charged with uh, fraud. Because if you, if you don't report earnings that you were paid and but you apply for unemployment and you do that intentionally, you can be charged with fraud, which can keep you from getting employment benefits going forward. So I think it's important for people to let them know that by mistake, they did not report PTO upfront because they didn't think they were supposed to, but now they are reporting it so that they won't be um, charged with fraud. Now, as far as if they should file it in their weekly certification, I'm not sure if there's a way, if, if they can do that, if they can, maybe they should do that. I'm, I'm not really sure about that. I'm kind of hoping that the Department of Labor gives some guidance on that for people who were not able to report it in their initial application. I'm sorry, not the Department of Labor, the Louisiana Workforce Commission. So, so um, is there anywhere where someone has captured as many of the different permutations of this workforce related relief, let's just call it uh, for a minute, um, where it, it's, it's all kind of captured in, in, or not all, but a lot of it is captured in one place where people can go and kind of, you know, scan through it and figure out which aspect of it refers to them that, uh, that uh, is, 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 is relevant to them. So the Louisiana, the Louisiana Workforce Commission, are you, you're talking about unemployment? Um, I guess not just unemployment, but um, I, I guess primarily unemployment, but also um, what about, uh, uh, the next question I was going to ask you is, what about contractors? Uh, you know, there's so many gig workers in New Orleans. I mean, a lot of people who, especially amongst creatives, for example, they work in the hospitality industry, they do... Um, you know, and they or they work uh, in education, but they're but they're not full time employees. Mm -hmm. And so um, some of them, I don't know whether they can in, in, uh, apply for unemployment insurance or not. It's not clear to me. So gig workers and self employed workers can apply for unemployment insurance under the expanded CARES Act, and they have to go online and file an application just like regular W two workers have to file an application. And the confusing thing on that is what, what do they report? Do they report their gross pay or their net pay? The Louisiana Workforce Commission Secretary, Ms. Ava Desjois, on WWL, an interview she had with Newell Norman, said to go ahead and report your gross pay. And if they have questions, they'll reach out to you. I'm encouraging people to report their gross pay, but also if they can upload documents as soon as possible, showing their net pay and hopefully the workforce will take that into consideration because there's a lot of self-employed workers like for instance a pedicab driver well he may make a certain let's say his gross is 300 dollars a week but when he pays for the rental of his pedicab he's under he's down to 200 dollars a week and actually that addresses one of your questions where you said I think your question was what sorts of people pitfalls. Pitfalls was the word I was looking for. Yeah. Pitfalls. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. So actually people who make more than $247 a week currently, but they're still not making what they used to make before COVID, or they're making more than the weekly amount they're allowed to make, which could be less than 247, they fall into this area uh, where they can't, they don't receive any benefits. It, and they don't receive the $600 in FPUC either. 
So, you know, there's a lot of frontline workers and essential workers whose hours have been reduced to maybe $300 or $400 a week, but they're making well over the $247 a week. So while they're not making anything close to what they used to make and they've been hit financially really hard, they're not getting any unemployment assistance. Now, depending on what their income is, they may uh, be able to, they may be eligible for SNAP benefits. So they could look into that. They also may be eligible for Medicaid. Medicaid's opening enrollment for new applications right now. And another thing about Medicaid is they're not kicking anybody off of Medicaid right now for unless that person chooses to be off Medicaid or if they move or if they die. You know, it's so, it's, there's so many um, contradictions in policy, in public policy right now. Um, and, and needless to say, throughout the private sector as well and, and even the nonprofit sector. So on the one hand, you're saying, you just said that they're not kicking people off Medicaid right now. And then yet on the other hand, you hear that in Washington, there's still a move to end Obamacare. I mean, uh, what, what are people thinking that this is a time to end any kind of health insurance uh, program when, when we were in the middle of a pandemic? Uh, so it's, it's so confusing to me to hear you say, and SNAP, I thought they were actually attacking SNAP at the national level as well. And, and you know, I'm gonna say on a bottom line because we're gonna run out of time pretty soon. Um, we're actually out of time just about, but um, uh, it, it really does seem to me that this is so complicated and it's not gonna get any simpler any uh, uh, too soon. I mean, again, uh, we're all getting, I think, starting to grasp that this is going to be uh, working through it, itself through in phases. There's no light switch. It's going to continue and we're going to be dealing with uh, different var varieties of, of uh, situations. So it, it strikes me that I know that you're doing this as a good Samaritan, basically. You just felt like you wanted to help. But I honestly think that there is a need for a sustained business model of people who um, really try to work with folks who are trying to find whatever resources there are out there. I mean, I, I personally, I'll talk about it on, offline, but you talked already when we first um, visited, when, you first, uh, when we first contacted you uh, about our situation in my household where, um, you know, uh, I haven't been taking an income, I've been you know, running a nonprofit and, and not saying, so I, who knew that that meant that therefore I don't have 1099s, therefore I'm not eligible for anything. Um, or if they're, if I'm eligible for something, I sure don't know what yet. But I, I have this feeling that, again, it's, it's even more complicated than we've just covered in our 20 minutes that we've been talking. Um, and, and it's not going to get simpler because there will be corrections. There'll be constantly, oh my goodness, we really have to help these folks or, oh my goodness, this is not really working well. So it's going to continue to keep changing. It's not going to be, you can't, you know, as I said, I, I wish there were a directory out there that just covered all the different opportunities, but they're going to keep changing. So why, why are you in a legal practice and other people in a legal practice not thinking about um, you know, how can you be involved? I know you don't want to take money out of the pockets of people who are suffering, but um, I think people would be happy to um, provide some uh, income to support uh, a sustained effort in your industry to help people. Well, one so, thing I, I uh, appreciate that. One thing I wanted to say really briefly is nonprofits um, and other self-employed and business owners, they can apply for a PPP and they can get more information on sba.gov. Normally though, for that, you have to go through the lender uh, as the lender can explain to you more clearly the guidelines and different lenders have different applications. I, I, I don't even want to go with, I don't want to even go there to the lenders because 
that that is another miasmic situation in terms of who's doing what it varies as you said from institution to institution there's really no clear guidelines there um uh, the only guideline i i've heard they say that the community smaller community banks are in a better position to help so on but then you reach people who really don't know what the options are i i gotta stop there just so we're out of time but um i want to encourage you to, to think about the sustained need. And um, I'd like you to come back on our show again sometime in the future when there's been another sort of seismic shift in how this is gonna work. And that might mean the next bill out of Congress, or it, it may mean, um, uh, I don't know, some executive order, or it may mean as we start opening up, um, who knows, nobody knows how bad or great that's going to be. So as, as things evolve, I'd really love to hear again from you um, and, and to share with us any um, perspective you can offer on how we can negotiate all this. Because, I mean, it's, 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 it's not my field, even though I actually studied in college a related subject area. But no, this is, this is beyond my... Um, um, toolkit, that's for sure. Uh, I, I admire what you're doing, Wendy, that you volunteered to step forth and help people with this. It's incredible. How can people get in touch with you? Well, they can, my phone number for my office is 504-585-7777. But a lot of the information regarding unemployment is on my Facebook group, Louisiana Coronavirus Unemployment Legal Advice Group. But then one other thing I wanna briefly mention, Southeast Louisiana Legal Services, they are a full-time pro bono firm and they have grants from the state uh, allowing them- Southeast to, Louisiana. Southeast Louisiana Legal Services. And they are able, they have a whole staff of attorneys that's helping people file appeals on unemployment claims. So they actually do have the ability, if you are looking for an attorney to help you file your appeal on an unemployment claim, you can reach out to them. Okay. Wendy Menard, I think you um, are to be added to the heroes list <laughs> because to take on this uh, is, is, is a, quite a challenge and to do it um, uh, out of a public spirit is, is quite amazing. And I, I thank you for what you're doing. And thank, thank you, you for so coming on the show and giving me your time. I appreciate thank you it. so much. It was a pleasure and I'd love to be on again. Please call again as, as soon as you have any kind of a permutation that you think is important for people to know. We can do short bits where okay. you come on and say, here's a change that's happened in this. Let, let's let everybody know. Thank you. Uh, we'll, thank you. What? Uh, we'll we say that yesterday or the day before Governor Edwards announced that people whose unemployment benefits had been exhausted because normally you only get 26 weeks of unemployment benefits, but under the CARES Act, you can get an additional 13 weeks of this pandemic unemployment assistance. They are going to be able to start processing those at the end of this week. I don't know all the guidelines on how they're gonna process that, but you should check with the Louisiana Workforce Commission website as, as of the end of this week to see if they have any updates on that. Louisiana Workforce. It's LA Works. Dot net or dot gov. I'm sorry, I don't have to look it up, but no, it's the Louisiana Workforce Commission. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Good Thank luck you. to you. Stay in Thank touch. You. Call me Thank as things develop. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you. This has been Crosstown Conversations. This is Jean Nathan on WBOK, what people are talking about.